This is Just the Right Book, and I'm Roxanne Cody of R.J. Julia Booksellers. Each week, I hope to bring to you the stories behind the books, talking with some of the very best contemporary nonfiction authors, books that are timeless and charming, provocative and of the moment. The conversations you want to hear about the books you need to read. Would it make you feel better or worse if you knew your therapist was seeing a therapist? Are you curious what your therapist is thinking while you bear your soul? Do you wonder how therapy could help you? And are you curious if your fears, needs, and sadness are unique? Lori Gottlieb, in her new book, Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, answers these questions and much more. Her background as a TV executive, psychotherapist, author, and columnist contribute to a book of immense appeal, readability, wit, and wisdom, and most profoundly offers us a candid, lively portrait of exactly what it means to be human. Lori, welcome to Just the Right Book. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. So the construct of the book is the story of five patients, one of whom is you, as they explore, solve, and reveal their struggles, their solutions, their journeys. How did this structure contribute to what you hoped the book would achieve? You know, I really wanted to bring people into my world as a therapist so that they could see what I get to see. I think therapists have this very unique vantage point. Most people don't get to hear the kinds of things that we hear on a daily basis, even though we're all experiencing these kinds of things. And so I wanted to bring people in, and one way to do that was to um, show what it was like to sit with my patients and to watch, in particular, these four patients that I write about in the book um, go through their experiences. Um, But I also was going through an upheaval in my own life at the same time, and I felt like it would be almost disingenuous not to show me as a human being, too. And so I become the fifth patient, and you see me going through my own therapy with my therapist. And I thought it was really important to show me as the you know, person going through the human the human struggles. Um, you know, I say at the beginning of the book that my greatest credential is that I'm a card carrying member of the human race. Um, but I also I also wanted to show the other side of other people going through their struggles. And I think that 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 normalizes, um, you know, what I like to call the daily problems of living for all of us. And how did you pick the patients? Although in the beginning of the book, you obviously their names are changed and and their situations are changed, or maybe some of them are even an amalgam. But how did you decide which patients to make part of the book? That's a great question. I wanted to choose very different people. So uh, the people that I chose look very different on the surface from one another and even from me um, in terms of age or gender or personality or history or the presenting problem that they came in with. Um, Because I think underneath it all, all five of us are dealing with the same kind of existential themes about life. And I, I thought that was really interesting to show people who seem very different, but who actually are quite similar. And and introduce us 
to the other four. We're going to meet you a little bit um, more in depth in a few minutes, but introduce us to the other patients. So the book starts off with a patient who at the beginning seems incredibly unlikable. Um, I call him John in the book, and he's uh, very abrasive, very insulting. He has what we might call narcissistic traits. Um, and, you know, he's he's incredibly insulting to me. He says that the reason that he came to me was because I was a nobody, and so he doesn't have to worry about running into any of his colleagues in my waiting room. Um, he hands me a wad of cash at the end of the session and says that he doesn't want his wife to know that he's coming to therapy, so he's just going to pay me in cash. And he makes a joke that I'll be just like his mistress, um, which of course, I don't find amusing. And uh, and then it gets worse because he, then he says, he thinks about it, and then he says, actually, not like my mistress. You're more like uh, my hooker. You're not the kind of person I would choose as a mistress. But, but you know, I, I think that a lot of people wonder, well, why would you see this person? Why would you take this person um, and treat this person? And I think that all of our behavior is a way of telling something, communicating something about our emotional world. And for him, it was a way of protecting himself. I didn't know what he was protecting himself from yet. Um, but I knew that if you're going to be that abrasive and you're going to push people away to that degree, getting close to people must feel very, very scary. And what was he protecting himself from? And so each patient is kind of like a mystery to me when I go to work every day. I'm trying to figure out, I know there's something going on and I need to figure out not only what it is, but then how to help the person see what it is and then how to help them change. So that's that's John. And I think, interestingly, he becomes the person in the book that most people you know, by the end, fall in love with, that they really, really come to appreciate him and like him in the way that I did. Lori, so. that's so funny that you say that about John, because the two of the four patients that I became just in, you know, in, in love, enamored, attracted, attached to were John and Julie. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they they really i think um you know they 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 make us really uh, care about them in a really profound way um as i think most of my patients do and you know the other part of it i think um in particular with john which i thought was a very interesting part of the book is that you see how therapy has liberated him yeah and he's a guy who, you know, originally when he comes, he's not coming to change himself. He's coming to change everyone else, which, by the way, is not uncommon. You know, a lot of people will come and say, the problem is out there. It's with all the people who are creating problems in my life. Help me to change those people. Um, and so he comes in and he thinks everyone is an idiot. You know, everyone is is incompetent. Um Everybody is doing things the wrong way. Everybody's, you know, making his life more difficult. And, uh, you know, he's kind of there because he's having problems with his wife and he doesn't see his own role in it until much later when he starts to really reveal himself to me. And that's when he becomes very likable. I think so many people come to therapy and there's almost this performative aspect where you want your therapist to like you. And so you want help, but at the same time, you want them to have a certain impression of you. 
And I think that as people become more vulnerable and they show the truth of who they are, that's when I really start to like them. That's when I can really um, empathize with them and also see our similarities and I can really get to know who they are. So I think with John, it took a very long time. It took a lot to get him to really be himself and 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 show me what was really going on in his life. And Lori, how... Um frequent or common is it for a patient to spend <clears throat> their first, second, third, or even longer sessions with you trying to present the story of themselves the way they want to be seen as opposed to letting their guard down and being there for why they're there? Well, I, I like that you use the word story because we all come in with certain stories. Um, there's this great quote by the uh, the psychologist Jerome Bruner, to tell a story is to take a moral stance. And, uh, you know, I think that when we tell a story, we're telling it in a very specific way. What are we leaving in? What are we leaving out? Who Who's the protagonist? Who are the antagonists? Who are the heroes and the villains in the story? Um you know, what are the threads that you're not including here because you want me to see the story in a certain way and agree with you and validate your position. So I think that when people come in, I'm not just listening to their story. I'm listening for their flexibility with the story. Are they willing to consider how the person that they're talking about might tell the story in a completely different way? And both versions would be 100% accurate, just missing key information. You know, it reminds me that I am often very curious and I pay attention to the first thing that someone says about themselves when you meet them. Yeah, you know, are they the one that makes sure they tell you that they went to Harvard or are they the one who, despite the fact that they're 65 years old, tell you that they were, you know, Miss Pumpkin Pie at the county fair in when they were 15 or whatever it is? Because to me, that's a insight into what they consider important about themselves. That's right. And and how they want to be perceived by other people, what? how do they identify themselves? Um, and so, you know, people will come in with their story. And I always say that I'm listening for the music under the lyrics. The story is the lyrics. The music is, well, what got you into this situation in the first place? And what underlying pattern or struggle brought you here today? And, you know, a lot of times when people are driving over to therapy, I'm in L.A., so they're driving, um, they're driving over to therapy, and often they'll think, what's my opening line? Um, I did that with my therapist, you know, so I can say that I know from personal experience that I think, what am I going to talk about today? You know, you only have a certain amount of time and you want to make good use of your time. And usually that opening line that you thought of before you got into the therapist's office isn't what you end up talking about. You might talk about what's underneath it, but you don't end up staying on the surface and talking about it, um, you know, at that level. And I think that that's one of the great things about therapy is that you really, you know, what we talk about with our friends is is a very different conversation from the kind of conversation you'll have with your therapist. Uh, so you, that raises a couple of different uh, questions in my mind, but let's start with uh, a, well, maybe this is not so simple. In the book, you talk about the presenting problem, like you talk about people in the car preparing their opening line. 
And what does that mean? What is the presenting problem? And what was yours? The presenting problem is the reason the person came to therapy. So when someone first comes into my office, um, they're going to tell me why they came. And usually what happens is the presenting problem is the thing that got them into therapy, but there's something bigger usually going on. And in my case, um, I came in because I was planning to get married to my boyfriend and all of a sudden um, he tells me one night that he's decided that he doesn't want to live with a kid under his roof for the next 10 years. And at the time, my child was eight. That kid was my son. And he had not been hiding in the closet for the past, you know, two years. You hadn't um, kept it a secret. Yeah, it wasn't. It wasn't like, well, you didn't know what you were getting into. Um, and um, and so my story and my version of the story, and I want to say very purposely that I'm saying my version of the story when I went to my therapist was, um, you know, this was a complete surprise to me. Who does this kind of thing? You know, and and I'll, everything that my friends said. And I talk in the book about the difference between idiot compassion and wise compassion. Idiot compassion is what your friends will do: is that they will try to, um, you know, they'll ha- they'll have compassion for you in a way that doesn't really question your story. So they'll They're be gonna like, take yeah, your you, side. Right. They'll take your side. And so they'll say, you know, oh, you dodged a bullet. You're so lucky you found out now. Something's clearly wrong with him. Who does this to someone? Who does this to their kid? Um, you know, and that feels really delicious in the moment. Um, but it doesn't help you in the long term. And so when I went to therapy, I wasn't given idiot compassion by my therapist. I told the same story that I told my friends. And I completely, even though I'm a therapist, I completely expected him to say, yeah, it's, you know, that guy was bad news. It's a good thing you found out now. But he didn't do that. He offered wise compassion, which was holding up a mirror to me so that I could see something about myself that I hadn't been willing to see. And that was that I was avoiding this this topic of the kids, too, that there were many signs in our relationship that he was not a kid person, and I chose to ignore them. And, And interestingly, in making my case about, you know, like why something was wrong with him that he couldn't like kids, (laughs) um, you know, even though he's with someone with a kid, um, I was showing my therapist that I actually knew quite a bit about his dislike of kids. So <laughs> were you aware of that when you were disclosing it? Because no, I noticed in not the book they were to an observer, they were kind of an obvious indication. Did you realize how obvious they were when you were telling them to Wendell, who's the n- name of your therapist? Oh, not at all. I, I didn't realize that at all. And I, I think that that's the thing. We all have blind spots. And and one of the things that every single patient goes through in this book, including me, is being able to see something about yourself that you hadn't seen. So those blind spots that we all walk around with make us act in certain ways. It's why we keep shooting ourselves in the foot over and over and ending up in the same place over and over. Um, it's because of those blind spots. And once you can see what those are, then you can say, oh, maybe I'm going to do things differently now. So, Lori, well, let's go back. You were you were talking uh, just a minute ago about friends giving what you call idiot compassion. W- one of the things that, I, and I see this more with women than I see it with men, that 
we have an enormous reliance on our friendships to sustain us, support us. When is it appropriate as a friend to be wisely compassionate? Because I, I, I think we all find ourselves in a situation where sometimes you'd want to say with a friend to a friend, "You realize this is the fifth guy of that ilk that you've." dated and become unhappy with or broken up with, or they've broken up with you. But do you think that that's never a friend's role, that that's therapy's role? I think that it depends on your relationship. I think when you have a good, strong friendship, um, that's a really helpful thing to say to your friend. It's kind of like if a fight breaks out in every bar you go to, maybe it's you. You know, that's something that your friend can really benefit from. I think timing is really important. You know, if if the person is calling you and saying, this just happened, he just broke up with me, that's not the moment to say it. Um, you know, maybe a week later, maybe two weeks later. But, but that's not the moment. I think therapists are very, very skilled at being able to say something in a way that a person can hear it and benefit from it. And they know how to work with timing. They know how to work with defenses. Um, but I do think that that part of friendship is being able to be honest with your friend in a in a compassionate way. What, what I like to say is we, we like to deliver compassionate truth bombs. And I think that you can do that with your friends. But I think you have to you have to know how to do it and when to do it. Yeah. And 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 probably also think about their own level of self-awareness. Right. You know, we have friends who seem deliciously self-aware and others who maybe because they haven't been to therapy are not particularly self-aware. And then that always feels to me like not, not, not a good role for me as a friend to be doing the truth bomb. Yeah. And it's always helpful, I think, for people who maybe don't want to hear some of this, uh, advice, um, is just, is to suggest to them that they, that they might want to talk to a therapist, not in a pathologizing way. And I think one of the one of the main things I hope that happens with this book is that people see what therapy really is, that it's not because you're crazy. It's not because something's wrong with you. It's not because you're defective. It's actually a sign of strength to go and say, I want to understand more about myself and my relationships and what I'm doing with my life because I only get one life. And I want to I want to live it. I want to live my life to its fullest. And I keep running into problems or I'm struggling or I'm depressed or I'm anxious or um, I keep having problems in relationships or whatever it is. It's great to be able to say, oh, I don't have to struggle so much. Would you describe in the in the most perfect of circumstances just what therapy can accomplish for someone? I think therapy helps us to see ourselves and the world around us in a clearer way, and that helps us to make better choices and better decisions in our lives. Yeah, and do you do you end up seeing patients where they come in with a presenting problem? You've worked around that, they finished their therapy, but then they come back again later? 
it's an interesting relationship because it's one of the only relationships where you start off knowing that it's going to end and that you're going to form this very deep, intimate relationship with somebody and maybe never see them again. And as a therapist, that's something you really have to get used to because you really start to, you know, like your patients, um, enjoy working with them, and we want them to leave. You know, that's our it's it's the worst business model ever. You know, it's it's like, you know, the business model is get rid of your clients. But that's what we do. And um that's success. That's success, right. And so, you know, do people come back? Sure. You know, they'll come back for a tune-up or um, they'll leave and then, you know, years later, maybe something changes in their life and, and then they decide, you know, they want to come back and talk about that. Um, you know, and some people you never see again because they worked out what they needed to work out. So it just completely depends on the situation. You know, one of the things that you talk about in the book, you use the English version of what my father used to say to me in Yiddish, which I'll not say right, but his line was, if my bubby had Batesum, she'd be my Zadie. <laughs> you, you use that in English as, if the queen had balls, she'd be the king. So describe for us how that comes to play a part as somebody starts with a therapist. So many people come to therapy feeling trapped by their circumstances, their past, their childhoods, their marriages, their, you know, you name it, um, their parents and uh, their jobs. And, and what happens is when you start to unpack that with them, sometimes there's no way that this person will find a way out because they nothing is is right for them so they'll say oh yeah i could get a new job but i would have to drive this far um you know yeah i really this person would be the perfect partner for me but i don't want to be with an artist you know like whatever it is and and you know so that's where i say in the book if the queen had balls she'd be the king meaning at a certain point are you creating your own unhappiness? Are you the author of your own unhappiness when we go back to story? Because the story that they're telling themselves is that they can't have what they want in life, and yet so many times they're presented with something that looks very much like what they want in life, but they come up with a reason not to take it. Mm. So speaking of story, uh, your, right to, uh, your route to psychotherapy doesn't strike me as too typical. How did you get from George Clooney to your current work? <laughs> um, it's it's funny that you say that because so many people think that I've had all of these different careers. And to me, they're pretty much the same career, which is I've always worked with story and the human condition. So when I graduated from college, I worked in film development in Los Angeles, and then I moved over to network TV at NBC. And I was a baby executive there when the year that Friends and ER both premiered. So <laughs> it was a good year for NBC. It was it was the, the beginning of the reign of must-see TV and Thursday Night Dominance on, on NBC. And um, I really, really loved ER. I loved Friends, too. Um, but I loved ER because we had a consultant on the show who was an ER doc, and he would make sure that the trauma-based scenes were choreographed correctly and that everything was accurate. And um, 
I would hang out in the emergency room with him sometimes, and I loved being in the ER. I loved the really rich human stories that we were telling on ER, but I loved the the nonfiction, you know, the real version of being in an ER, right? I mean, it was it was it was life changing when you would go in there. Nobody goes to the ER because they expected something to happen. So it was all of these moments of something was going to change. And um, it really made me want to go to medical school. And so I left uh, working in the entertainment business and I went up to Stanford for medical school. And when I got to medical school... Were there uh, a lot of ex-screenwriters there in medical school, Lori? Well, I wasn't a screenwriter. I was I was an executive. Um, but um, there were, you know, Stanford had this really interesting class. So there were people who, who, who had worked in politics in Washington. There were people who had been actors in theater in New York. Um, there had been, you know, people who had completely different careers and came to medical school as sort of non-traditional students like me. So it was a really great place to be for me. And the thing about medical school, though, was that when I got there, it was the beginning of what was this, at the time, newfangled thing called managed care. And a lot of my professors were saying that, you know, the landscape was changing, that you wouldn't get to spend that kind of time that you wanted to spend with your patients, that, you know, I was all about these these stories and wanting to, I, I had this fantasy of being the family doctor who sees people through their their lives as, and I really would get to know them and spend time with them. Um, and it just didn't seem like the medical model that was going to that was changing in this way was going to um, be able to facilitate that. And so um, I ended up leaving medical school to become a journalist where I felt like now I can work in story in a different way. I can help to tell people stories. And I loved being a journalist. And, and I still, you know, I write the Dear Therapist column for The Atlantic. Um, I still write pieces for, you know, everybody. But um, I just I I had a baby and I had I loved working from home before I had a baby and I loved being a journalist but once I had a baby I really needed adults to talk to during the day and to actually go and see and so like the UPS guy would come with all the deliveries that you get when you have a new baby and I would kind of detain him and say things like what's your story and do you have kids and how about those diapers and he would kind of back away to his big brown truck and try to avoid me sometimes he would like tiptoe to my door and like put the package down very gently so he wouldn't have to interact with me and he I was knew telling this. his therapist about you exactly exactly and so I called up the dean at Stanford, with whom I had become very close when I was in medical school. And I said, maybe I should come back and do psychiatry because I think that I'm not going to like being a journalist, you know, in this new role as a mother. I feel like I, I, I love my child dearly and I need to have adult interaction during the day. And she said, you know, I think that if you do psychiatry, you're going to be prescribing Celexa in 15-minute intervals all day long, and you're going to have to go through residency with a baby and a toddler, and why don't you get a graduate degree in clinical psychology and you can do the kind of deep work that you've always talked about doing? And it, it was the best advice ever. You know, you you, you talk about these, these aha moments, but I literally got chills when she said that. It was like the hair on my arm stood up. It sounds like such an obvious idea, 
but it was life-changing. And I did that. I went to graduate school and I did my internship and I took my boards and I became a therapist. And now I feel like I went from telling people stories as a journalist to helping people change their stories as a therapist, because I really feel like what I do in the therapy room is help people to edit their stories. Yeah, I love that line. I I, I saw that I saw that in the book, and the thing that it um, made me—well, I'm not—I'm not, I'm not going to go uh, to that question. Let's go to the fact that you also do the column because I looked a bunch of those up. So you've been doing the column, dear therapist, for uh, the Atlantic Monthly for how long? Um, it's been about a year and a half now, and. And how do you find that experience? Because that's pretty prescribed, right? You don't have the opportunity to get their whole story. Right. So when somebody comes to see me for therapy, I can ask follow-up questions or I can notice things in the room and I can really um, find out information that I can't find out in a letter. And so when I do the Dear Therapist column, I'm not necessarily giving prescriptive advice. What I'm trying to do is I'm trying to help them to edit their story. So they'll say, the problem is X. And I'll say, I want you to look at it from this angle. I want you to consider these things. And these are the things that I am guessing are missing from their story, not knowing them, just going by the letter. Because I've heard so many of these stories. You have to realize that not only do I hear stories all the time as a therapist, but then you get all these, you know, thousands of letters that you've read through in in your inbox. Um, and so you've heard these kinds of stories so many times that even though each person's situation is unique, there tend to be certain things that you have a feeling they're not considering that you want to help them to see. Do you, you must get an incredible amount of letters. I do. It's a lot to read through. Um, and they 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 run the gamut, you know. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, some stories are, um, you know, very long and detailed and some are very short and to the point. Um, in terms of content, I think that, you know, there's nothing that I've seen in a letter that I haven't heard in the therapy room already. But I also think that what they all have in common is this sense of, help I can't get out of the situation, the stuckness thing that we were talking about earlier. We've been talking with uh, Lori Gottlieb, who is the author of Maybe You Should Talk to Someone. Lori, let's go back to your decision to include your own personal story. How do you think that's going to impact your relationship with patients or how other therapists will feel about referring patients to you? What what does all that look like? And how did you think about that before you decided to expose yourself in this way? When I decided to include myself in the book, it was because I felt this gnawing sense of fraudulence that I was writing the stories of these patients who are being very, very vulnerable and going through, I think, very difficult things um, that where I I appeared to be so competent, right? I appeared to be the, you know, the expert up on high, and I didn't want to write that book. Um, I I felt like I had to include myself in there as a human, 
um, or else the book would just kind of fall flat. And I don't think people would get out of the book what I wanted them to get out of the book, which was the normalizing, which was the um, seeing how we're all more the same than we are different, which was about seeing things about themselves that maybe they didn't already see. I didn't think it would be as powerful. There was, that was one thing in the writing. Then it came to turning it into my editor and you know, I really thought like three people would read this book because there's a history to this book, which I write about in this book, which is that I was supposed to be writing a different book. And I had before that I had turned down an incredibly commercial book um, that I didn't feel right about writing. And so this book was the non-commercial book, the book that nobody was going to read, the book that I had made the horrible mistake by turning down those other opportunities, but that I felt like I had to write. And so I really didn't think I was going to have many readers for this book. So I wasn't that concerned about how I was going to come across. And then I turned it into my editor, and she was so um, pleased with how raw and open I was (laughs) about my own struggles. And then I got very self-conscious about it because she was saying, oh, everybody loves this, and and lots of people are going to read this. And all of a sudden, I thought, uh-oh. Uh-oh. So I thought, maybe I should clean myself up a little bit. Um, but I didn't. I didn't because I realized that—and now, seeing how, you know, it's—I think we're at, like, week 15 on the New York Times list at this point. I think that the reason that so many people are reading it is because— I didn't clean myself up is because I was so I was as real with my therapist as my patients were with me. And I'm as real with the reader as they were with me. And I think that that's what makes people want to um, immerse themselves in these stories. Well, you know, Lori, I do think that's one piece of it that made it appealing. But the other thing that I found appealing about it and like this little vision I have in in my head is, you know, like when you see like a little cartoon character who pretends to be two people. So they're on the left side of the screen saying something and then they run to the right side of the screen saying something else. Yeah. So I felt like you being both a patient and a therapist and almost a little bit of an observer of your own therapy you know, like admitting, like, I know what he's going to do now, or I can't believe I'm acting like a normal patient, even though I know I'm I'm falling for a trap, actually added a dimension to me as a reader understanding therapy that was utterly enlightening because it fleshed it out. It wasn't one-dimensional. It wasn't the patient, and it wasn't Uh, the therapist. And yes, I became attached to you as a patient. And and it made me respect even more the kind of therapy that you do for the patients that you talk about. Does that make sense? Well, yeah, it does. I, I wanted people to see, to learn something about what was really going on. I think a lot of people wonder, what is my therapist thinking? And I wanted to show people, well, here's Here's what this. Here's what here's what she's thinking. Right. Well, here's what this therapist thinks, um, which I think is you know similar to how a lot of therapists think. And I even bring them into my consultation group where I go every week. A lot of therapists do weekly consultation where we talk about our cases so that we can get feedback and help each other out because we do work alone in that room. And you know I bring people into that the consultation group as well. But I also think there's so much um, humor 
um, that I wanted to include in the book about just how ridiculous we are as human beings. And I say that with so much affection and include myself in that, that, you know, there's so much about my being able to see certain things at the same time that I can't change them because I'm not ready. And you see me, you know, we always say insight is the booby prize of therapy, that, you know, you can have all the insight in the world about why you do what you do. But if you don't make changes out in the world, the insight is useless. And so you can come to therapy every week and say, oh, now I understand why I get in this argument with my partner. And then you go home and you do the same thing. It doesn't matter that you have the insight because you're still you know, creating the argument at home or or participating in the argument. So I really wanted people to see that even though I knew better than to do certain things, I did them anyway. I Google stalk my therapist, right? Um, you know, there were all these all these incidents in the book where I know I shouldn't be doing these things and yet I do them anyway, in the same way that my patients do. Like like we didn't talk about my other patients. I I got off track. But um, one of them is this woman in her 20s called Charlotte, and she keeps hooking up with the wrong guys. And at some point, she ends up hooking up with a guy in the waiting room who's waiting for his appointment at the same time that she is. And I don't mean that they hook up in the waiting room, but they meet in the waiting room. That's good, Lori. (laughs) That would be another book altogether. Um, And, um, you know, and, and he's exactly the kind of guy that she shouldn't be seeing. And she knows this on some level, but her, you know, the way that she rationalizes it to me is she says, well, at least he's in therapy because, <laughs> you know, because he's in the waiting room. So he goes to therapy, um, which is a step up from the guys that that she normally dates. Um, but she knows better and she's just not. Well, she's kind of right. Well, no, she's I mean, clearly he's bad news and she's just not ready to change yet. And and then you see how she does change ultimately. Um you know, and, and you know, the other patients, there's Julie, who's this this young woman who comes to me. She's in her early 30s. She's just got back from her honeymoon, and she just got diagnosed with breast cancer. And, you know, ultimately, um, the breast cancer seems very treatable, and it is treatable, and, you know, we say goodbye. And then six months later, she gets this scan um, to clear her to get pregnant, And it ends up that she has this other completely different, rare, aggressive form of cancer that's going to kill her. And they say she has somewhere between a year at worst or 10 years at best, but probably somewhere in the middle. And what do you do with that information? And so, you know, she asked me if I'll stay with her until she dies. And the experience that we have together, um, you know, is so rich and and it's tragic and it's beautiful and it's all of these things in the way that it's no different in a lot of ways from the stories of the other patients. And I talk in the book about this idea of like this hierarchy of pain that we feel like, well, Charlotte's problems with the boyfriends pale in comparison to Julie's with her cancer. But she and Charlotte were actually asking herself many themselves many of the same questions. Um, you know, same with this the the fourth patient in the book is this Um, woman who's about to turn 70. And she says, if things don't get better in a year, she's going to kill herself. Um, And she's this incredibly isolated person who was a terrible mother. And her adult children won't talk to her. She's had a few marriages and she feels like nothing can get better. And yet so much does, more than I ever anticipated 
to be honest. And, and Lori, it's interesting that in response to that question, you brought up hierarchy of pain, because once you talked about Julie, I was going to bring that up. Because I do think that you see in real life people feeling like maybe they shouldn't be upset about their problem because somebody just lost their spouse or somebody just lost a child and all they had was a miscarriage or they're just upset because they're fighting with their spouse. And when you talk about it in the book, you talk about, well, they're all, they, you know, I to reinforce the idea, they're really all coming from the same place, although they're dealing with maybe dramatically different issues. That's right. Um, you know, I think we tend to minimize our problems. And what happens is it's it's almost like if something happens with your body physically, like you're having chest pain or something doesn't feel right, you'll probably go to the cardiologist before you have a massive heart attack. But if something feels off emotionally with us, so often we will say, oh, it's really not that bad because, you know, I have a roof over my head and food on the table. And so I'm just going to, you know, carry on. And what happens is those feelings don't go away just because you suppress them. They're still there. And in fact, they get stronger because they're going to try to get some air in some way or another. So they'll come out in behaviors, you know, like you'll just, you know, a colleague of mine calls the internet the most effective short-term non-prescription painkiller out there. <laughs> and I think that's very true that, it, you know, you'll spend a lot of time on social media or on the internet or, um, you know, binge watching something, or you'll be short-tempered with the people in your family, or um, you'll self-sabotage, um, you'll isolate yourself, you'll drink too much. You'll do something with food, eat too much, eat too little. Um, you know, they come out in other behaviors, those feelings. So I think that what happens is people land in therapy when things get really bad, like when they're having the equivalent of an emotional heart attack. And by then, you've suffered unnecessarily for so long. And at the same time, it's harder to treat at that point because now it's gotten much more severe. You've got, you've got, uh, I'm reading a, a uh, it's one sentence from the book, but you you say, in other words, therapy is about understanding the self that you are. But part of getting to know yourself is unknown yourself, to let go of the limiting stories you've told yourself about who you are so that you aren't trapped by them, so you can live your life and not the story you've been telling yourself about your life. That's right. So many people imagine that therapy is about getting to know yourself better. And it is. But part of getting to know yourself better is to unknow yourself, meaning a lot of people say, I'm like this or I'm this way, or here's the story of my childhood or here's the story of my marriage. And it's a very rigid version of a story and their role in it is very rigid. And I think that it's so liberating when you can say, oh, there's more to this story or, oh, there's more to me than just that piece of the story. Um, and when you can can give yourself more space to explore other aspects of yourself, that's, that's what happens with Julie, the, the woman who's dying of cancer, that she was someone who had been very by the book. You know, she had checked off all the boxes. Um, she had done everything exactly the way one should on paper. Um, but with this cancer diagnosis, she 
did all of these things that she never would have done. Um, not that she would have traded, you know, if she could say, you know, I'd choose not to have cancer. She would absolutely choose that. But she she got to see aspects of herself that she never knew were there. And she got to unknow this version of herself as like, I'm the goody-goody, I'm the rule follower. She got to know a very different version of herself. Mm. And part of what therapy can do is help somebody discover that without the horrible diagnosis of cancer, which sometimes forces people to do things that the rest of us think we don't have to bother with because everything's good enough. Right. And one of the experiences that therapists have is that whatever their patients are dealing with, our patients force us to ask those same questions of our own lives. So when I was working with Julie and she really, it was very important for her that we talk about death in a in a really honest way. And I was a relatively new therapist at the time, and I hadn't dealt with somebody like her. I had dealt with people who were older and had um, terminal illnesses, but I hadn't dealt with someone young like her. And I really had this instinct to protect her. Like at one point, she needed a colonost uh, a colonostomy, um, a colonectomy. Sorry. Um, and at one point, she needed to have her colon removed, and. Um, she was going to have to have a, a bag. And she said her husband, she was really worried that her husband was going to be repulsed by this. And she said, Matt's going to be repulsed by this, isn't he? And my instinct was to protect her and say, oh, no, 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 he's going to be fine with it. And I wanted to tell her about this thing, Victoria's other secret that I had learned about in medical school, which were these like um, colostomy bags that had like peace signs and hearts and flowers on them, and, you know, and that's not what she wanted. She wanted, we really had to look death in the eye together. And it forced me to look at certain things in my own life, like what was going on with my health at the time. And I was writing this horrible, miserable happiness book that I did not want to be writing. And why was I forcing myself to do this every day? Um, you know, and how do we live more with more intentionality? How do we wake up and say, am I living my life in the way that I want to live it? Because every single one of us will die. We all have a 100% mortality rate and we don't need to get, you know, the diagnosis that Julie had in order for us to pay attention to the fact that we all have a limited time here. We're all going to die and we need to think about living our lives in the way we want to in the time that we have. And that may sound really grim, but I think it's really hopeful and inspiring to say, Let's keep death just perched on one shoulder so that we're always paying attention to how we're living our lives. Well, you know, it does remind me that one of my like top 50 books is a book called Denial of Death uh, by Ernst Becker, which talks about just that. I think it won an award maybe in the early 70s, but it talks about Exactly that. By denying that we're ever going to die, we actually don't allow ourselves to live fully. Right. Death can be a great motivator. Just knowing that 
Um, you know, and I think that that's what that's what my therapy actually is about in the book is that it seems like it's about this breakup. And that's very little of what we end up doing in therapy. It, and it, it, it actually happens that in my very first therapy session, I'm telling him the story of the breakup and I'm giving him the play by play of how it happened. And then I say at some point as I'm crying and, you know, now I'm in my 40s and and I've wasted all this time with him and half my life is over. And my therapist gloms on to that phrase, half my life is over. And that's what our therapy is about. And he figures it out right there in the first session. That's what our therapy is going to be about is something is happening in my life and I've been stalled. And there are all these things, all these secrets that I was keeping from myself, from my therapist that I wasn't willing to look at because it would force me to deal with my own mortality. It would force me to look at where I was at middle age and how my life was not aligned with how I wanted to live. And that was going to be much harder work than sitting there and ranting about my boyfriend. Yeah. So, or, or replacing him or... Let, let me let me close with, um, you know, I feel badly we didn't get to Wendell, who I think in some ways is the star of the show. And anybody who reads this book will, if they don't want you as their therapist, will certainly want Wendell um, as your therapist. How, how would you... Uh, well, let me ask it this way. Does Wendell, who seems like the most perfect therapist anywhere ever on the planet, are there really lots of Wendells? I think there are lots of Wendells. I think most therapists are some version, most good therapists are some version of Wendell. And, and also what I show too is that no therapist is perfect, that I show where Wendell makes mistakes, where he repairs the mistakes with me. Um, you know, there are times when he made a bad call and it's not it's not a horribly bad call, but it was, you know, he could have turned left and he turned right, as we all do. You know, it's like I think therapy is a lot like improv. You're in the room and you're you're moving at the speed of the conversation and you're reflecting, you're thinking about, it's almost like I used to compete in chess tournaments when I was little, and I think about it like that. You're thinking five moves ahead. And everything you say is very genuine, but also very intentional, because there's a reason you're saying it. There's a reason you're saying it in the way that you're saying it. There's a reason that you're saying it then. There's something that you're holding for later. And I, you know, I, I go through all of that in the book where I, I show the reader exactly what I'm doing. And when Wendell makes a mistake, you know, later on, it, it gets corrected. Do you think your being a therapist made Wendell a better therapist because you there was a knowingness in how the two of you converse? I think that in some ways my being a therapist gets in the way of therapy because it's hard to take off your therapy hat and just be a person in the room when you imagine what you would do or say, but it's almost like this microphone that's in front of me right now. It kind of goes away once you get into it. Yeah. Then um, you're just Lori Gottlieb. Yeah, exactly. Then we're just having a conversation, right? And so I think that's what happens when you go to therapy is that in the beginning, I very much was thinking, oh, I know what I would be thinking if a patient said that to me and I want to steer him in this other direction. Um, but you can't backseat drive when you're there. And so, uh, you know, I think you just go in and you're just you're just you. So one of the last questions I want to um, get your thoughts on before we close is 
You know, Sherry Turkle, who's at uh, MIT, talks about the impact of cell phones and social media impacting uh, impacting people's ability to have a conversation and and accentuate the sensation of feeling alone. Are you finding that with your younger patients who have grown up with social media, is part of what you have to work on with them is even their ability to have a conversation? Absolutely. When I was having a conversation with Charlotte one day and she was telling me about, you know, something that happened um, and with a guy and she puts her thumbs in the air and she says, and then he said, and then I said, and she's doing this thing with her thumbs. And I thought, what is she doing? And then I realized she's telling me about their conversation that they had on text. And it was not the kind of conversation you want to have on text. And so I try to explain this to her, that it's so different to be able to have this kind of conversation face to face with somebody. And she's, you know, and telling her you can't really read their emotions. And she said, oh, no, we also use emojis. And she wasn't kidding. And, you know, and I think so much of that gets, um, you know, so much gets lost in these emotional experiences and these relational experiences that young people have where they're not having these conversations face to face. They spend so much time on text. Um, They don't know what it's like to be able to look somebody in the eye and be vulnerable. And I think that they really need to learn those skills if they want to have successful marriages, if they want to have successful relationships, um, and if they want to be good parents, too. Yeah. We didn't even get to talk about your article that was like one of the most read articles in um, Atlantic Monthly. That would be like a whole nother show. But I, Lori, I really um, would like to thank you for uh, joining us on Just the Right Book. And uh, the other thing that i I'd like to close with is this. I found I, I found your book to accomplish um, exactly what you said at the at the top of the show about uh, the purpose of it. I do think it makes all of us feel human, but more importantly, or as not more importantly, but as importantly, It is a very hopeful book about no matter how stuck you might be or what age you might be, that there are pathways towards being a different version of your story that is more you. That's right. I do think it's a very hopeful book um, because what I do every day feels very hopeful to me. A lot of people say to me, how do you listen to people complain all day? <laughs> you know, and I always find that so jarring because that's not at all what I do. I feel like in the therapy room, every day I'm seeing somebody transform before my very eyes. And I don't mean some huge transformation. I mean that I think most of our big transformations come about from these hundreds of tiny imperceptible steps that we take along the way. And so you see somebody in the therapy room and they do something different that was so hard for them to do before. Um, You see that with every single patient in this book. And these people are not anomalies. And so that, I think, is the, the big message is that the people that I chose, I could have chosen, you know, dozens of others, um, but I chose these four in terms of, you know, 
how much they change, how hard it is to change. And then once they do, um, how different their lives become. And I think that we all have the potential to change our lives in that way. Well, let's close on that note because because that's not only positive, it's part of what you talk about in the book. So thank you, Lori, so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you. It's been my pleasure. Just the Right Book is not just a podcast. JustTheRightBook.com is a highly personalized book subscription service. It's good for readers of all ages. We have decades and decades of bookselling experience at RJ Julia's, and they're the ones who are selecting these books. Here's what happens. We get tons and tons of letters. We've been around for over 10 years, and the letters always are a version of this. I can't believe you picked out this book. I would have never picked it out. And guess what? It was just the right book. So visit justtherightbook.com for details and begin your subscription today. Of course, we have a promo code for you. So if you go to justtherightbook.com, use the promo code podcast and you will get 15% off on your subscription at justtherightbook.com. You are listening to Just the Right Book with Roxanne Cody, brought to you by Lit Hub Radio. The show is produced by Roxanne Cody, Michael Selleck, and Lit Hub Radio. Our editor is Gino Cardone at Pleasant Podcast. The original theme music is by Kurt Feldman. You can subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. I am Roxanne Cody. Thank you so much for listening. And if you have any comments, observations, suggestions, we'd love to hear from you. You can email me at justtherightbook at rjjulia.com.